The following sermon is brought to you by New Covenant Community Church, a Bible-based church located on Route 62 east of Johnstown, Ohio. To learn about New Covenant Community Church, visit www.new-covenant.org. Again, that is new-covenant.org. Now, enjoy the message. Amen. Please be seated in God's house as we enjoy the presence of our Savior. I want to welcome you to this place, a fellowship of God's people in God's house, who by His grace are about His business. And as we just bask in God's goodness, we can be taking our Bibles to the third chapter of the book of Acts. As we continue on, And seeing that God's word is preached, as we have already in the beginning of the book of Acts, seeing some of the roots of the church, our foundation or beginning, if you will. We know that it began with this man named Luke, who was a physician, who made it very clear in the beginning of the book of Acts that he was convinced and convinced wholeheartedly of this man named Jesus. We saw there in the beginning how Jesus after having been raised to life, having the power over sin and death that no other has except himself, he then goes about for the period of 40 days to teach his disciples and to show them the connection between the Old Testament prophecy of who Jesus was and is and all that he would accomplish and the things to come. He seemingly built those connections as he taught his disciples those 40 days. He tells them to wait for the promise of the Father, this coming of the Holy Spirit, After giving those instructions, he then ascends to be in heaven, to be at the right hand of the Father. The disciples obediently went to the place there in Jerusalem in the upper room. They are together in one accord. They are praying. And the first order of business was for them to replace Judas, who we know was the betrayer of Jesus, with the man named Matthias. Once they completed that, they continued on in prayer there in one accord in the upper room. And then the day of Pentecost fully came, the Bible says. The Holy Spirit came to fill these believers. Peter then preaches the Pentecost sermon that we know of. And the crowd's response was interesting. Some just thought that they were drunk, but others, the Bible says, were cut to the heart at the conviction that was brought about by the message that Peter preached. And the Bible tells us that 3,000 people were saved that Pentecost day. Continuing on from there, the Lord added to the church daily, the Bible says, as the church cared for one another and had this caring for one another, this love and fellowship that had never been seen at any point in history before. And then last week, we saw how Peter and John were taking themselves up to the temple to go pray, and they see this man who was born a paralytic. That's where the famous line comes from, where Peter says, silver and gold I do not have, which is the thing that the man was asking for. He was there to beg for alms. He says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And as you might imagine, seeing someone who has been paralyzed their entire life to see them then walk, it got the crowd's attention. And Peter begins to preach there on the porch of the temple And last week we covered all, most of the sermon, and now we're in verse 17 of Acts chapter 3, where we are continuing to hear this sermon that Peter 
is preaching. So if you're in Acts chapter 3, you can look to verse 17 and following as we continue to hear about what it was that Peter was preaching. Verse 17. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance. And if you're wondering what it is that he's referencing to, he had just told them, he had just explained to them that they were the ones guilty for the crucifixion of Christ. And Peter says, yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel to those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning every one of you from your iniquities." you believe this is the word of God, say amen. Preachers get really excited about verses like this because we could take a hundred years worth of Sundays and preach only what I just read to you out of God's word and still not have squeezed all of the gospel juice out of that grape. So let us pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us this morning. Uh, Jesus, we, we love you. Father, we are humbled by all that you are, and all yet that we know from your word that you will continue to do in changing us into the image of your Son as as things progress closer to the day of your return. Father, we we are impressed by it, we are won by it, we are overwhelmed by it. But Father, it would be enough for us this very morning in these very moments that we share together as your children. Uh, Father, we're asking for your Holy Spirit to shine a light on your word and make it illuminated to us that we might understand it, that we might perceive it, that we might be not just hearers of it, but doers. Father, we love you. Holy Spirit, guide us in this time. We do pray. In the awesome and only name worth praying in, the mighty name of Jesus and all the church says. So I am really bad at cooking. Um, I'm almost as bad at cooking as the Cleveland Browns are at playing football. And if you don't know football, that's really, really bad. Um, 
But I have been around someone now for the past several years who is good at cooking. My wife is good at those things. And, you know, it's kind of funny. People that are usually really bad at cooking, we ought to be able to write the book on how to cook because we're always the ones hungry, standing there waiting for the person that is good, to, that is good at cooking to prepare the thing. And what I've noticed when you watch someone who is good at cooking is they, they will bring out the recipe book and they'll even sometimes have one of those fancy little stands that'll sit on the kitchen counter. And the person who is good at cooking will be sure to follow the recipe. They'll be sure to measure things in the proper order, mixing them in the proper way, placing them in the oven at the proper time, all of the things that go into making this item that not only looks good, but is good. We're going to be looking at today in God's Word the recipe for fruitful evangelism. The pieces in the puzzle that go together, that God's word shows us that it is the way to make it such that we can have lasting disciples marked by love and loyalty, which is obviously part of our core values here as a church together, that we not just be in this cheapified process, but that we do things right and according to God's word. We're going to be looking at that recipe today for fruitful evangelism. Now, if a person that is creating a food item if they don't follow the recipe and it, for example, they're making chocolate chip cookies and they don't do the ingredients right, it will make an item that may look like a chocolate chip cookie, but it's not going to taste right. It won't be the right thing. It won't be having come from the right recipe. Now, this is certainly a silly little illustration, but I hope that you see the incredible, incredible weight of this recipe of fruitful evangelism, because if we don't get that recipe right... Dear friends, the cost is much more than a batch of cookies that have gone bad. The cost of not doing evangelism, not doing this preaching and proclaiming of the gospel the right way, the weight, the thing in the balance is eternity for some of our children and our grandchildren and our friends and our coworkers and people that we have an opportunity to share the gospel with, though that is what is indeed in the balance. So I hope that you would see that in sincerity this morning and that you would lean in to be a student of God's word as we see it together. So look back, if you would, please, to verse 17. And before we read it, let me simply give you the context so we can all see it for clarity. We're seeing here the second portion, if you will, of this sermon that Peter is preaching. And we know that this sermon is the second sermon that has been preached by Peter. First of which being the day of Pentecost and the second one being this after this event of God healing this paralytic. And then all these people have gathered around to see and Peter's preaching now a second time to this group of people that God has accumulated together. Now some things that are interesting about both of these sermons is there are some there are some similarities between both of them. Here are some of the similarities. Uh, both of these sermons, there were people who mocked at the sermon. We know that to be true and in the case of Peter preaching at Pentecost. We also know that to be true. We haven't seen it yet, but we know that we're heading straight into Peter and John being arrested for the words that Peter is preaching now. So we know that there were those who mocked at what it was that Peter was preaching in both of these sermons. We know that there were people who had incredible conviction of the Holy Spirit of God from both of these sermons. In the case of Pentecost, the Bible says that they were cut to the heart and they said to the apostles, 
Brethren, what must we do? What must we do to be saved? And that's when they were able to tell them those things. There were people who were very much convicted. We know in the case of Pentecost that 3,000 people were saved at that point in time. And we also know from this, leading into knowing what we're heading into, that there were people of incredible conviction. Uh, We also know from both of these sermons that Peter looked at both of these groups of people that God had accumulated together and said, you are the ones to blame for the killing of the Son of God himself. He placed this incredible blame, this incredible guilt upon the heart of the sinner. And I believe, as it was for Pentecost, where we know without a shadow of a doubt that these men were cut to the heart, they had just heard the news that they were to blame for killing of the Son of God. And that they were, they were distraught. They were incredibly distraught over what it was that Peter had just explained to them Brethren, what must we do to be saved? They couldn't believe this horrible news. Could you imagine hearing that kind of news that you are to blame for something like that? Which is why I believe verse 17 and 18 say what they say. Let's let's look at it again as we read it. Yet now, brethren, Peter says to the crowd, Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers, But these things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Now knowing what it was that people felt on Pentecost and knowing what it was that the crowd was hearing the same kind of message, I believe that just perhaps Peter was saying these things to calm them down. Peter was just perhaps saying these things to get them to to relax just a little bit so that they understood that even in their wickedness, God's plan for redemptive history was still moving forward and that there was still this ignorance in which they committed this heinous, heinous crime. Now, it did not dismiss their guilt. They were still completely guilty of it, but I believe that just perhaps the looks on their faces that was the reason that Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was saying some of these things. But whether I'm right about that or not, the one thing that is clear in our first ingredient this morning for fruitful evangelism is to communicate the plight of the sinner's righteousness. I hope you understand those words clearly. To communicate the plight or the lacking of or the great discrepancy between God's holiness and that of the sinner, that the sinner's righteousness, that the sinner's works, that the sinner's good intentions don't stack up at all before a holy and mighty God who is a God that is a judge also. Peter communicated to these people their guilt and their shame that they were to blame, that their religiosity and their religious efforts meant absolutely nothing. He was communicating what it was that Isaiah said in, in Isaiah 64, verse 6, that, that even our best righteousness is like filthy rags before God. And we see this kind of teaching affirmed throughout all of Scripture, this kind of preaching that would communicate the plight of the sinner's righteousness, that it is lacking, it's nothing before a holy God, that it is indeed a dangerous place to be to trust in that of your own goodness. Uh, We know in Jonah chapter 4, verse 3, Jonah goes about, it says that he entered the city on the first day's walk, then he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He was communicating this plight of their own actions. He was communicating this great place of lacking in which they find themselves and of their own 
abilities. Uh, In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 4, 17, Jesus says the same thing, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was always this repent. It was always this, there's this weakness in yourself. There's this plight in that of your own righteousness that you can't stand in of your Self. And we know that there was great success from this kind of preaching. Scripturally, it tells us. Nineveh, the whole city, repented. In the case of this Peter preaching this sermon that he is standing on the porch there of the temple, it's very clear that there was, as it tells us in a little while, that there were thousands of people that got saved from that kind of preaching, as it was in Pentecost, so it was here as well. First uh, Thessalonians 1.10, it says, You wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So this kind of preaching, dear friends, this morning, this kind of preaching of explaining, of communicating to people their great lack and their great need for God, that ought to be a part of our evangelism. That is part of the ingredient. That is part of the recipe that we see out of God's Word. Now, certainly we exercise wisdom when we're saying these kinds of things to our children or young children in general. I understand that there is a time when their maturity is able to hear some of these things and they can understand it. We want to be very careful not to make sure that we are never manipulating people's emotions by scaring them. That is never the goal. But there is a place to tell people the truth and that their own righteousness is lacking, it's worthless, it's nothing, it will get them nowhere. I did a search this week just in preparation for this sermon. I don't know about you, but I've heard different statistics about how much Jesus will talk about heaven as opposed to hell. And many famous preachers, I would say, are very good preachers. You've heard many times people say that Jesus talked that much more, much more about judgment and about hell than he ever did heaven. And I'm not sure what the ratio is, but it was very interesting that Google, that wonderful organization, almost every single thing that I could find regarding this question of which did Jesus talk about more, heaven or hell, it brought up all of these articles that were basically dismissing all the times that Jesus even talked about hell or even talked about judgment. In these articles, the vast majority that Google, loving organization Google brought up, were all about saying that Jesus was just inviting you into this better life and that Jesus is just inviting people into a better way of thinking about the world and seeing things that happen around them. And I just want to tell you, church, that's not the truth. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to call sinners to repentance. He came to communicate, as he instructed his disciples also, to communicate the great need that sinful humankind has for a perfect Savior. That was the reason. Those were the reason for some of those things. And can I just tell you, this, this common movement that, is, that we see all around us today of, of, of this even preaching from the pulpit of just having a better life, if, if we really believe what the scripture says about our life like it does in James 4, 14, where it talks about our life being but a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. If we believe that, if we believe the Hebrews 13, 14, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. 
if I believe that as a pastor, I just need to lovingly tell you that I don't really care about your life. Like, the, 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 pre, the goal of the preaching is to, is to get us ready for eternity, for us not to just play this game of just how to have our best life now. Our best life is not now. It is a vapor, and it's a vapor that's in a sin-cursed environment. The thing that we're getting ready for, the thing that we are evangelizing people to get ready for is for that of eternity. If you're with me, say amen. That is what our focus must be towards, and we see the ingredient, we see this recipe, including this communicating of the plight of the sinner's righteousness. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We need Jesus to fix that. Somebody say amen. And I'm thankful that our Savior has done that. I'm thankful that he has... He has defeated death. He stood in my place. I am thankful for Jesus for having done those things for us, church. Now, this communicating the plight of the sinner's righteousness, this is, this is definitely not popular. But if you, if you step back and look at it, I hope you see how incredibly logical it is to preach this kind of way. Now, not that God needs to do things that are logical. Sometimes God does things that don't seem logical to me, and that's fine. That's what my faith is for. I trust him. But with regards to this particular topic, to me, it's very clear and incredibly simple as to why it is that God, that Jesus modeled himself, John the Baptist being the greatest prophet born among women, Jesus says, preached in that way. And now Peter, thus far in the beginning of the church, has preached twice in this kind of way, showing us the recipe for fruitful evangelism. I think it's very plain. And the reason is because a life preserver is only seen as a wonderful gift when someone is actually drowning and convinced that they are drowning. If you understand what I'm saying, say amen. Anti-venom is only a wonderful gift and a treasured item if someone has indeed been bitten by a venomous poisonous snake and they're convinced of it. The parachute is only a wonderful and wonderful awesome treasure when someone is falling out of a plane and they're convinced of that fact. Jesus Christ himself and the redemption that he offers is only beautiful and wonderful when the person is convinced that their own righteousness is nothing. It is like filthy rags before God, but that Jesus offers it all, then he becomes beautiful. Then what he offers is amazing. We ought to communicate the plight of the sinner's righteousness. So do, have you, dear friend, been convinced of that this morning? Have you been convinced that your best righteousness, that your religious efforts are not enough, that your being a good person is not enough? Have you been convinced that you being better than everyone else that you know, it is nothing, nothing, nothing before an almighty God? I hope we've all squared with that and understand it and see it clearly. So if you would now please look to verse 19 as we continue on, as Peter continues to preach. Verse 19, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that, look to your neighbor and everyone say so that, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. 
So there are some things after Peter places on these people their great blame, their great guilt, which is true. He then shows them something that God offers to them through this means of repentance and being converted. The three things that he highlights from the text that we just read was for the sins to be blotted out, for this refreshing to come about from the presence of God, and for this return of Christ that was to come about. So our second ingredient in the recipe of fruitful evangelism that we'll see this morning, number two, is to communicate the unmatched benefits of the sinner's repentance. To communicate the unmatched benefits of the sinner's repentance. Peter places the blame on them. He shows them who they are before a holy God. And then he shows them the wonderful, incredible unable to be perceived because of how good they are realities that God brings about when someone repents and is converted. The first of which being, which we'll look at in a little bit more detail right now, is this sins being blotted out. Um, Who's got a pen? Lots of us have a pen. You've got a pen in your hand, and the way that our pens work in today's world is you'll write on a piece of paper and the ink sinks down and really grabs a hold of whatever it is that you just wrote on. Uh, It wasn't so in biblical times. They would have this papyrus paper, which was their rough kind of crude paper that they had, or vellum, which was this animal hide that was stretched very thin and made like paper so that they could write on it. But regardless of the surface that they were writing on, the kind of ink that they had back then was different. Hang on with me here because I want you to understand where I'm going with all this. When someone, when, when we make a mistake, you know, it used to be white out that you'd paint like nail polish. Now it's one of those little easy tape like kind of things that you can run over and, and cover what it is that you just made a mistake with. Back in biblical times, when somebody was writing and they made a mistake, they would do something very different. The ink, rather, would sit very much on top of the surface. It didn't have the technology that we do today where it can really hold on. It would very much sit on top of the surface that they would be writing on. And if they made a mistake, they would then take a sponge that they could blot and it would soak up the ink where they made the mistake. So when Peter says that your sins may be blotted out, I believe it's something very profound of them understanding that in the Old Testament it was always about sins being covered. It was always about this animal sacrifice that would not blot out one sin, but cover it, that they would be covered. That was the language that was commonly used, talking about the Old Testament way of sins being remitted in that kind of way. But, but Peter stands up and says, you're guilty of this great crime, but if you repent and be converted, you can have your sins blotted out, taken away. And we see this affirmed when Peter, in 1 Peter 2 verse 24 where he really talks about Jesus being this kind of sponge that takes away the ink that makes the mistake. It says, who himself bore our sins in his own body. When, when somebody made a mistake on the paper, it was the sponge that would literally take the mistake away. When you and I sin before an almighty God, it is literally Christ himself. He himself who bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. So this ought to be a part of the way in which we see this recipe of evangelism. 
communicating people's great need for Christ, their great guilt, their great lacking in their own efforts and own righteousness. But then this awesome, awesome, awesome benefit that their sins can be blotted out. Well, why is that so important? And the Bible says there in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If the wages of sin is death, and Jesus has forgiven me of my sin and has blotted it out, has blotted it away, cast it as far as the east is from the west. I'm not, I'm not clothed in my own righteousness, but I'm clothed in Jesus' righteousness that's perfect before holy God. All of a sudden, the curse of sin, the curse of death is done away with for the believer. If you're happy about that, say yes, because I am this morning. It's awesome that Jesus has done that. We can highlight, we ought to highlight this great overarching of all others benefit to people when we evangelize them saying you need God you're bad (laughs) you're rotten you don't have you're just like the rest of us you've lied you've stolen you have fornicated you have sinned in all these ways you have fallen so very short but even though you are guilty of that if you repent and be converted like Peter said Jesus will blot out your sin such that it's not even there. It's not even a part of you. God doesn't see that when he sees you anymore because you're clothed in the righteousness of another. If you're still with me, say yes. The second thing, the benefit that Peter outlines is this refreshing from the presence of God to repent so that we might have this refreshing, this refreshing of the Holy Spirit and his presence and and I'm not exactly even sure what that means. I'm not even really sure if this refreshing that we get from the presence of Jesus himself is talking about right now in the age in which we find ourselves or if this is talking about the millennial reign that we know is coming with Jesus ruling with the rod of iron and us being there and serving him and all those things. But either way, we know, I hope you know, and maybe it's something that we ought to just pause more on of just how good it is to be forgiven. Maybe we should just wake up tomorrow morning and just before our feet even touch the ground, just thank God that he's not looking at us based on our sin anymore because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Because we've repented and his grace has covered us. Maybe we should just take some time to enjoy that a little more, to enjoy being refreshed by those kinds of things. Maybe we ought to go through this next season that looks very tumultuous with all of COVID and everything else that's coming down the pike likely in the next months. And and maybe we ought to just find some peace and solace in knowing that, you know what? It doesn't really matter what happens because I know I'm redeemed. I know I'm forgiven. I know that I am in the righteousness of another and I can enjoy this refreshing from his presence. And then thirdly, the thing that, that Peter outlined is this awesome benefit this unmatched benefit of the sinner's repentance is the return of christ he makes it plain to them that in this in god's plan of redemptive history that you can be in the right place in all of that that you can be kept safe under his wings because of what jesus has done making it clear the sinner's guilt and then making it clear all that god has all the good wonderful blessings from all those things so our ingredients Thus far, for fruitful evangelism, to communicate the plight of the sinner's righteousness, and secondly, to communicate the unmatched benefits of the sinner's repentance. Now, here's some things that are not rabbit trails, but things that will hopefully help us just see what's happening here in the text 
more in 3D, if you will, just so that we can have a, a healthy understanding of what it means to see this recipe of fruitful evangelism, to see the model that God has given us in his word. Um, Peter and John, as best I can tell, did not have a church growth goal. Uh, they, uh, as best I can tell, their, their mission, their vision was to give people Jesus. The conclusions that they had come to, that Jesus was the highest treasure to have and to give, and that he was the authority to which we are most accountable, but they, they were just geared and ready to give people Jesus. I don't really see this model of church growth and these schemes of church growth and these plans of church growth. I'm kind of interested to know how we can even, as humans, think that's really even up to us. I think it's really just our responsibility to be ready to preach the gospel, to be ready to fulfill the great commission and let God take care of the size of his bride, whatever. I've had people ask me before, well, Pastor Ben, how much more do you think New Covenant Community Church will grow? And it's like, it's not really up to me. That's not up to any of us. It's our job to be ready to preach the gospel, to be obedient, to see that souls are saved, to have the same heart of God in these areas, but to let God be the leader of his church and to decide the size of the bride that he has here at his church. The other thing we see just helping us to see this whole thing, to see it in 3D, is to draw these crowds, they did not use any kind of gimmicks. There was no scheme to draw a huge crowd. What we do see, however, is that God did something that did draw a crowd. With Pentecost, it was the speaking in tongues that it got everybody to stop and say, what's all this about? And, and, and God did something that drew the crowd, and then they were just ready to preach. Uh, here again, Peter preaching, and this model that we see of the early church, we see that Peter and John were just going up to the temple to pray. They were just interested in helping just one guy. I bet they didn't expect what happened that day as they've got thousands of people around them to hear Peter preach. They probably didn't expect that when they woke up and ate breakfast that morning. But they just were going up to the temple to pray. They just gave this guy Jesus. Then God did something that drew the crowd and then they were just ready to preach. So let us remember that as we see this recipe for fruitful evangelism when it comes not just to this church but in our families also. I don't buy this notion that we have to be these hip, cool people and that you've got to be going to a church where the pastor wears skinny jeans. Praise the Lord, that's not the case. I don't buy that we have to be relatable in all of these kinds of ways to a sinful culture. That How about we just trust that God will bring the people and you and I just be ready to be obedient to fulfill the Great Commission. We ought to just be ready for those kinds of things. And we know that that model of them just being obedient, them just trusting, them just being willing to die to self and let God lead his church, man, it had a fruitful, fruitful outcome. And Acts 4, which we're not to yet today, but I'll read it to you now to give you some context. It says, however, as many of those who heard the word that Peter preached... It says, as many as heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Now, I don't know if that means that from the 3,000 people that got saved at Pentecost, that then 2,000 were added to them, bringing it to 5,000, or if it was 5,000 here that Peter preached that got saved that day when he was preaching on the porch of the temple, added to the three, which would make 8,000. I'm not really sure about that. But either way you cut it, it was the thousands. It was in the thousands of people that got saved. 
It was in the thousands of people that you're going to meet someday in heaven. It was in the thousands of people that were no longer clothed in their own righteousness, but clothed in the righteousness of a perfect, holy, sinless Savior. If that's good news, say amen. That's what we ought to be positioned for as a church, as we see the recipe for fruitful evangelism. To let God draw the crowd and for us to die to self and simply be ready to be obedient. All that started with Peter and John wanting to help one man. Wow. Shows us that maybe we ought to just be keeping our eyes open for an opportunity to help one person. If you're with me, say yes. The last thing I'll mention before we move on is that the people that Peter was preaching to were devout people. They were people near and around and in the temple to pray. And there were that many of them that got saved. So just remember when you go to church and the purple people that you're sitting next to and the person that is in the row in front of you and behind you, just remember that just because we're all here doesn't necessarily mean that we all know God. These were religious people. These were devout men and women there at the temple to pray that were gathered around when Peter preaches and a whole bunch of them get saved. So let us stay steadfast in this awesome and fruitful way of evangelism that is outlined in God's word. So look now, if you would, to verse 22 as we come into the last ingredient that we'll see of the recipe this morning. Peter says, verse 22, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. So we see in this recipe that God has given us through his word is that God was drawing this crowd. They were ready to be obedient. Peter now numerous times, now multiple times, has communicated this plight of the sinner's righteousness to show them how lacking it is. He was also ready to communicate the unmatched benefits of the sinner's repentance to show them what God had done in his mercy. And this third ingredient that we'll see is to communicate the inability to ignore Jesus. Peter quotes Moses, this prophecy that Moses had given, saying that there's been all these other prophets. And if most of your Bible translations will show a lowercase p when it uses prophets, to reference all the other prophets from, think of any other prophet, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jonah, any of the minor prophets, all of these other minor lowercase p prophets have said these certain things, Moses says, that Peter's now quoting to these people. And he says, but there's going to come one prophet, capital P prophet, if you know it's talking about Jesus, say amen. And when that prophet says something, you can't ignore what that prophet says. 
God has been long-suffering throughout the generations, throughout the ages, throughout all of these prophets saying all these things. God was long-suffering and John the Baptist, the greatest prophet of all, to preach all these things, this message of repentance, and God was long-suffering with you then. God was even long-suffering through with Jesus preaching in all of these kinds of ways. But, but when this one prophet comes and he accomplishes what it was that God would put before him, You can't ignore that prophet. To ignore that prophet is to be cut off. It is to be utterly destroyed, the word of God says. So I wonder what about you? I wonder if you have come to grips with the the plight of your own righteousness. I wonder if you have come face to face with the unmatched benefits that God has, has won for us. That his son has been victorious over and offers to for the life of the believer. I wonder if you've seen those things. I wonder, if you've, I wonder if you've come face to face with the reality that your sins, if you don't know Jesus today, that your sins can be blotted out this very morning. I wonder that. I, I, wonder, I wonder if you've come to the reality that, to understand that you can't, you can't ignore Jesus. You've, you've got to do something with him. He's done too much. What he's done is too pivotal to ignore what he's done. He's not the lowercase p prophet. He is the capital P prophet. You can't ignore what this prophet has said. It was Samuel Lockridge in that awesome sermon titled, That's My King. In that textbook, if you've ever heard a sermon that he preached, he just sounds like a grizzly bear every time he talks and says something. And he says something that he was quoted saying in that sermon was, You can't outlive Jesus and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. It's the most important question you could ever deal with is what you're going to do with Jesus. What are you going to do with these realities that you are lacking in your own strength? It's the most important thing that you could ever survey is the wonderful good plan that God has for you. Should you repent and be converted? So assuming that's the case for us, brothers and sisters, this morning, this recipe of fruitful evangelism, of communicating the sinner's plight and their own unrighteousness, their, this, their own abilities, people won't like to hear that, that they are lacking in their own strength. But boy, am I convinced on the authority of God's word that that produced results that some people will mock some people just as it was in all of these circumstances some people will always they'll sit there and mock they'll think you're crazy they'll they'll think that you hate them all these different things but but there will be other people and i think even perhaps lots of people who will be cut to the heart and will say like those people all the way back then said what must we do to be saved Let this be part of our evangelism among our own church, among the unbelievers that are among us, as well as those otherwise. And that we would be faithful to not only communicate their great blame and their great need for God, but also the great and wonderful things that God has done. And that we cannot ignore him. The urgency in this, that we must preach these things. So would you stand with me as we bow our heads as we continue on to worship? Brothers and sisters, let us put ourselves to this good and faithful work. 
doing it God's way. There are many ways that are not God's ways. In fact, all of these humanistic ways of man, they are not his ways. Let us be faithful as a church in this evangelism to do it right, to do it biblical, and to see that God gets the glory and that many come to know him as a result. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you've been so good to give us your word, to show us the way in these things. Father, forgive us for the ways, the numerous ways in which we are so tempted to be a people that strives after our own understanding, that strives after our own ways. Father, we have done that as a church. We have done that in our own families of seeking humanistic wisdom. Father, it's nothing before you. Our wisdom is foolishness compared to you, Jesus. Our ideas are pathetic in the presence of your might, in the presence of your sovereignty, and your knowledge, and your understanding, Lord. So, Father, as we have seen this model, as we have seen these things in your word, let us be faithful doers of it exercising faith for the many things that will not make sense to our human hearts that are fickle that are so blinded by what so many others are doing make us faithful in our families i pray as we evangelize our children as we show our children the gospel as we show our children the brokenness in the heart of sinful humanity Make us faithful in this model that you have ordained in your word and shown us to be so fruitful. Let it be so for this church, I pray. In Jesus' mighty name and all the people say, let's worship together.